0: Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator.
1: And my name is Laura Rodriguez-McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado,
0: and part of a fourth-generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University.
1: On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away.
0: Murder, murder, murder. Hey, Laura. Hey Sarah. So this week we continue our series on art theft. I'm really excited. We've got a lot of interesting episodes coming up. We so. do
1: and we are stepping away from murder for the holiday season. Yes a we are.
0: Bit. Yes we are. And we're talking about theft. So in this season of giving we're actually talking about taking. <laughs> <Exactly. So. laughs>
1: and we actually have a special treat today.
0: Yes we do. So Rembrandt it's a name that is nearly eponymous with great art, as in he's no Rembrandt. According to the Art Loss Registry, Rembrandt's work is on the top 10 list of artists whose paintings are the most stolen, currently at 337 pieces that are missing. Rembrandt would have gotten a chuckle out of this. He often painted everyday scenes in Holland, thieves, fish markets, gallows, nothing was too quotidian for Rembrandt, including a dog taking a squat in one of his paintings. Born July 15, 1606, in Leiden, Holland, Rembrandt von Rhein was one of ten children of a flour miller. Rembrandt dropped out of school to become an artist. As brilliant a painter as Rembrandt was, he was also a loving documentarian of his ribald, bustling Dutch culture of the early 1600s. His use of light and his early nod to modernism really made him stand out amongst his contemporary artists. If you zero in on the lace of a collar, per se, it's almost like an abstract painting. And it's the life in his portraits that I think touched the viewer even after four centuries. So it's not surprising then that his work has often been coveted and stolen. We have the
1: honor of having Anthony Amore back on the show to discuss his book, Stealing Rembrandt. Anthony Amore is the Director of Security and Chief Investigator at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. I think it's fair to say he has made it his life's mission to recover the 13 paintings stolen from the Gardner in 1990. Anthony, it's always a pleasure. It's always my pleasure. Thank you. And we heard that you are, are you teaching a class at Harvard now or in the future? Nexus.
2: I didn't even think of that. Yeah. uh, Next semester, Jeff Kelly, the Goddard Museum's FBI case agent, who's my partner in this investigation, and I will be teaching a course on our crime. It's the Continuing Education Division.
0: That's great. Do you guys have a couple of spots left for us? We'd love to join. Yeah, we're we're close by.
2: (laughs) Folks like you who read a lot about true crime and dig into these sorts of books, I think you're all set. Uh, (laughs)
0: This is uh,
2: sort of like an introduction to art crime and security and such for burgeoning museum professionals who are studying museum studies at Harvard.
0: Oh, terrific! Fascinating. It, it sounds fascinating. And so, is that live or is that on Zoom? I'm just
2: on Zoom. We we were really looking forward to being in the classroom, but it's going to be on Zoom, which is a little easier for. It wasn't our choice, but it's probably a little easier for Jeff and for me. So it, it works out nicely. Hopefully, it will be live.
0: That's great. And Anthony, you've also written two other books that we absolutely love: <laughs> The Art of the Con. And The Woman Who Stole Vermeer. We interviewed you about The Woman Who Stole Vermeer. It's about Rose Rose Dugdale. Dugdale. It's a wonderful book. It's a great episode with you. So I urge our listeners to do both, basically. And I have to tell you, Anthony, I think I gave
1: half of my family that book
0: last Christmas. So
1: I urge anybody listening, if if you have some readers on your Christmas list, great Christmas gift. Everybody I gave it to. Loved it, passed it along. Such a fabulous
2: Christmas gift. Thank you. I love hearing that. I really do. Thank you.
0: I just wanted to say that I actually just reread the book that we're talking about today, Stealing Rembrandt's. This is a fantastic book. You have done a masterful job, I think, with just describing art theft in general, going into Rembrandt himself and his body of work. Anthony, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what sort of drew you into this world of studying art theft? Well,
2: that's a good question. I had worked in Homeland Security jobs for the first half of my career. So I spent about 15 years working in immigration, and I was a special agent for FAA security. And then I was an assistant federal security director when Homeland Security took over airports uh, right after 9-11. And after I had done everything I felt I could do in those jobs, I took this strange plunge and decided to apply to do what I do now uh, after just seeing an ad in the Boston Globe. And it went back when they used to have ads for jobs in newspapers. I recently looked up that ad in the archives, and it's just surreal to see it. It's it's unusual for me to apply for something like that. I did and. After some back and forth, many, many months about salary, I came aboard, but the short answer is when I came here for my in-person interview, I had never been to the Gardner Museum before, and the interview was right outside by the courtyard, inside, but outside the galleries, by the courtyard, the famous centerpiece of the museum, and I just couldn't believe my eyes. I mean, I couldn't believe, like, wow, I would walk in here every day to go work, and I could get up from my desk and look at this. And. That whole idea appealed to me. And on top of that, the, the work in Homeland Security following 9-11 was incredibly stressful. And I thought this would be a different adventure for me. But when I saw the empty frames, I knew that, oh boy, I'm, I'm just going to be just as obsessed as I was about bags going into the belly of aircraft is uh, now that I have to try to fill these empty frames. And I never would have guessed at the time. A million years—that's 16 years later. I'd still be here, and I'd still be looking for them. But here I am. Wow. So,
1: for anyone who doesn't know, some listeners may not know what happened at the Gardner Museum.
2: In March 18, 1990, two thieves disguised as police officers approached the side entrance of the museum. Essentially, talked their way in. Were able to subdue the guards, handcuff them, and then spent 81 minutes going through the museum's galleries. Actually, they only really went into three to steal things, but they sold 13 items. It's the biggest theft of anything in the history of the world. They tried to steal all four of our Rembrandts. They took three. Uh, they took the, the concert by Johannes Vermeer, which is the most valuable thing ever stolen. Still missing. Uh, they took painting by Flink, painting by Manet, etching by Rembrandt, five works by Degas, a Napoleonic finial made of bronze, and a... 1200 BC Shang Dynasty beaker. And all told, it's just, you know, it's almost not worth trying to put a dollar figure on it. It's just many hundreds of millions of dollars. It's a stunning crime, obviously, still unsolved. Nothing has come back. And uh, we're every day trying to uh, fix that.
1: And a huge mystery that many, many people have tried to solve. What is the reward for information?
2: Thank you for asking that. If the reward is for information that leads us directly to our painting. So you don't have to find the paintings. You just have to know where they are and lead us directly to them. Right. Which is is $10 million. Um, Some people falsely say that, this is a real bizarre one to me, but there are people out there who say that the reward is only for all the paintings. It's all or nothing. That's just patently false. Mm I mean, there's a, a division of that $10 million allotted to each painting, but we keep that private for our own purposes to protect ourselves. It is the biggest private reward ever offered. It used to be $5 million, and even then it was the biggest private reward ever offered. We've had the reward since day one. Paintings were not insured, so all of the reward comes from us. Sometimes people think the reward comes from the FBI. It does not. It comes from the museum. For the reason I just articulated, the idea that the information has to lead us directly to the paintings, theorists inundate us with theories. Mm-hmm. and i hate to say it but they're never ever useful i i, I always discourage the public from giving me theories i encourage the public to give us facts about what they know what they might have seen what they might have heard but theories are you have to believe after 31 years we've heard every theory it's not a case armchair detectives get really upset with me when i say this however it's not a case that's going to be solved from someone's armchair in the basement it's just not. It's going to be solved and this whole matter will be closed by someone telling us something they were previously afraid or unwilling to tell us.
0: The missing Rembrandts, the stolen Rembrandts from the Isabella Stewart Gardner, was that inspiration to you to write your book directly or what was sort of, I would imagine it would have had an effect, right? I mean, especially the storm on the Sea of Galilee is just a tremendous piece and that is gone with the rest of the works from The Gardener. And was this the inspiration for you writing Stealing Rembrandts?
2: Sure. Well, I have a giant copy of it in front of me here, and I would say you're on the right track. So when I first started, my plan was that I would research every art heist I could find and create a database to profile who steals art, what they do with it, how it's recovered. So for instance, this database I've created, Kept track of, for every art theft I could find, if the paintings were recovered, how far away were they when they were recovered? That sort of thing. And what was the profile of the makeup of the criminals? And what was the MO? All of this, so I can get a good sense of how this really happens. Was art theft an anomaly? For instance, cutting out the paintings, is that an anomaly? Is that unusual? It's not. But I wouldn't have known this unless I did all this research. So I was very ambitious, and I always tell people when I first started, it was 16 years ago. So a lot of this was done on microfiche. I can't believe how much the world has changed mm. in 16 years. It seems like yesterday. So I would pull all of these stories and there were just too many. And That was my first big lesson about art theft is that it happens a lot. And there's no way I could use study that was accurate in a short time by looking at all art theft. So I said, we lost three Rembrandts in an unusual fashion. I thought, One of them is the only known seascape by Rembrandt. The thieves clearly targeted Rembrandt because they tried to take all four of our pieces. So let me just focus on him. And that's how I began my journey. And as I was accumulating these photocopied stories from the BPL, Boston Public Library, for your out-of-town listeners. (laughs) Thank you. I put them in a manila folder. And that manila folder grew and grew and grew. And I told my assistant at the time, I had a... uh, i not really an intern, it's a really bright young woman working with me who I could trust. I said, you know, these will make a good, a good book someday. And one day, honestly, over lunch, I wrote a book proposal, hackneyed book proposal, but i was fortunate enough to get it before an agent who loved it. And um, Tom Mashberg, who was a friend of mine, who was at the time the Sunday editor for the Boston Herald, was interested in participating. And I hadn't written a book before. And I was working, I don't know, 60 hours a week, so I thought, wouldn't it be bad to have an extra hand with his experience working with me. So that's how the book came to be.
1: So Anthony, with all that information that you accumulated, could you tell us? First of all, I'd be just interested to know who steals art.
2: Men. Men number one is men, right? And that's
0: okay. We're we're, we're gonna change that. Okay. (laughs) No, no.
2: Rose Dugdale did.
0: Except for Rose Dugdale,
2: right? (laughs) So you guys and I had a really nice conversation about this before. That the impetus for writing that book was my interest in outliers. So when I look at all the thieves, right? I'm, I'm talking about major heists, right? And I compile information about, say, one painting taken from a gallery in Rockport or something. I compile that, but my study is mostly about major masterpiece heists, which there are tons of. So in those, it's always men, except for Rose. So there's always one or two outliers. But
1: Right. Do you find that these are career criminals who focus yeah. on art, that they they're, are?
2: They're career criminals who steal everything and art comes up on the spinning wheel of fortune. There's nothing they haven't stolen. So there's no guy who's a specialist at stealing art. It is very, very rare to find someone who's stolen a masterpiece more than once. That's a major outlier. Off the top of my head, I would think of Miles Connor, of course, the greatest art thief. A guy named Stefan Breitweiser in France, who, who stole a lot of things in Europe. Not masterpieces, but lots of art. There's a guy named Hank B. They only use first initials in the Netherlands when they... Prosecute somebody who was involved in the 2002 theft of two Van Goghs at the Van Gogh Museum. And he recently made headlines because he tried to steal a Monet with someone about two and a half months ago. And he dropped the painting on his way out. A helpful bystander outside helped break up that heist. But to find someone who's done it more than once, it's incredibly rare. And the reason is simple it's because. Guys that steal these things learn rather quickly that you can't monetize them. So there's no point in doing it again.
1: And that's my next question is, why do people steal them if they can't sell them?
2: Well, as you two know extremely well from all of your own research and all sorts of crimes, criminals don't do research on their crimes, right? So (laughs) the guys who steal paintings don't go to the Boston Public Library and pull that same microfiche. And to find out what happened with stolen masterpieces is not easy. A lot of times they come back years later, people have forgotten the story. The museum or the owner keeps it very, very quiet because they don't want the public to know about their, what was stolen once before. So it's difficult to find out exactly what happened. It takes a lot of hard work and thieves aren't thieves because they enjoy hard work. They're thieves (laughs) because they enjoy a quick score, right? So I hope there are people who are thinking about robbing a museum that listened to Ivy League murders and get my message that you're wasting your time. And that's an interesting segue to, if you don't mind, that right after Stealing Rembrandts came out, and I mean right after, there was another Rembrandt theft but it didn't fit the typical mold. It broke from the mold that I discussed in the book in that it was a drawing called The Judgment, which was not well known. It wasn't something anyone would look at. In fact, it's not in his catalog raisonné. A. So even experts were puzzled by this piece. It was stolen. It was valued at about a quarter of a million dollars. Thieves took it in, in just a simple distraction ploy at a small exhibition at a hotel. And right away, I coordinated with the LA County Sheriff's Office, a guy named uh, Captain Mike Parker, since retired, brilliant social media guy. And this is 2011, so it's still relatively early in the social media world. He did something so smart. He took this image and he made it famous. By putting it on the right platforms and getting it to the right media outlets, it became a hot item and too recognizable to traffic.
0: Mm -hmm. That is smart.
2: It was brilliant, right? And then I coordinated with Mike and said, here's what I'm going to say to the public. So because I had just written this book, the LA media interviewed me a lot. And in all the different interviews, I would say, I have a message for the thieves, not stolen a picture, you've stolen a problem give it back, ah. leave it somewhere and hope this all goes away because you can't sell it.
0: Nice. And they did. Nice. On the third That's... day after, they, left
2: it, at wow. they left it at a church.
1: Wow. They left it at a church?
2: Wow! at a church, yeah, yep. And they contacted the pastor, memory serves, and uh, he got it and he turned it into the police.
0: That's good contrition right there. A thief, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I like, like it. it. So we've asked you about some of the people <laughs> who steal this art, but What I love in your book is that you really blow open the doctor no myth. that there's this sort of omnipotent mastermind criminal that just collects art and keeps them in their basement with their shark tank type of thing. So can you tell our listeners about how we know this is probably not true in most cases?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting thing because, you know, I'll be honest with you, when I started, I thought maybe that was a possibility. That's one of the reasons I did this research, what becomes of them? And I learned that there's a thing called the Dr. No theory, which is that some evil billionaire somewhere commissioned the heist so he could have something no one else has. And the name of it literally comes from the James Bond movie, Dr. No. The first Bond film, it was 1962. And at the time, the painting of the Duke of Wellington by Goya, a true masterpiece, was stolen and missing from the National Gallery in London. And nobody knew who took it. And the screenwriters, it's not in the book, they wrote in this scene where when Bond is being led off to dinner by Dr. No in his underground lair, they walk by that painting. And Bond oh, looks back at it as if to be like, ah, oh, that's where that is. And people adopt that idea. That's literally where the whole idea of a Dr. No theory, or at least terminology, came from. To this day, I will give lectures to people explaining what really happens to these paintings. I'll meet people who read my book um, who've heard me talk and then they say some Russian oligarch probably has it. And I say, aren't you listening? (laughs) Aren't you listening? You're not gonna find that. Now if you look really hard you might find a billionaire who died and had a stolen painting that happened to be in his collection. But I assure you it's not because he hired some cat burglar to go take it. It's because he bought something that he didn't realize was stolen billionaires don't have to buy stolen things to get one-of-a-kind things, right? They can get that on their own. A stolen masterpiece can only get them in trouble, right? They have to pay a lot of money for something that can only get them in trouble if they show others. So, the smarter thing is to spend, I don't know, $10 million, which is nothing to a billionaire, and get some masterpiece on their own and show that off. So, that's why it's not These guys who have these paintings. Think about our case with the Goddard. Imagine you were a thief that was hired by Dr. No to steal those paintings for him. Okay. And he paid you a million dollars, which is impossible. Okay. But he paid you a million dollars. And then it's 2021, and now you can get another 10 million by just pointing the finger at him. Statute of limitations is over, right? You can't even get in trouble for stealing the paintings. It doesn't happen because evil billionaires are commissioning art places.
0: Right. But there is currency with stolen art, though. Sure. It does have some currency. And so, what is that value to an, an art thief?
2: It's a secondary currency in the sense, now, again, talking about masterpieces in the sense that once they realize they cannot sell them, there are only two other options. I mean, you can destroy them, but nobody does it. That, that would be ridiculous. You can hide them in case you need them, in case you get in trouble, or you can use them as collateral in some sort of drug trade or arms trade or any sort of illicit trade where you need to have collateral that has a lasting value. And you can use it over and over and over because people understand you have this painting, you're good for it, right? So think to, you, think to yourself, sometimes I will read about some major drug deal, transnational drug deal where the bad guys paid X millions of dollars for product. There's no honor among thieves, right? So you have to say, which, which happens first? Did someone send millions of dollars to some bad guy hoping he's going to send him the drugs? Or did some guy send these drugs hoping that the guy's going to send them in millions? Well, if you have collateral that can be taken, it shows you're good for it. It shows you're serious. It shows you're a real player. Right. So, an effective piece of collateral in the world of illicit trade.
0: Fantastic. Let's skip to specifically some of these capers that you discuss in the book. Can you tell us a, a little bit about some of these capers, these characters, maybe the Worcester Museum heist? And I love the, the Dulwich uh, Picture Gallery, too. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Just Yeah, those know. are
2: good choices. Those are two of my favorites. So the Worcester Art Museum heist is remarkable. There's a reason it's number one. It's the I, I give a lecture in which I argued three most important art heists in American history all happened here in Massachusetts. The first being the Worcester Art Museum, chronologically, because the first time a gun was used to steal fine art. And the mastermind was a guy named Al Monday, who I knew before I wrote the book. And I knew, you know, I got a chance to speak to him at length about the book. I've spoken to him a zillion times. I know Al really well. And he's one heck of a character. And he loves being one heck. And he was- smart. is Is
0: he still around? Yes. Oh, I
2: love it. Is. Yes. And yes. Um, in a nutshell, Al was a one of these thieves, one of these prolific thieves, stealing everything to get his hands on. And um, but has these visions of Granger, where he wants more and more. And he was tired of getting ten or fifteen percent on cheap stolen goods, and figured if he stole something worth millions, then he could really have a big payday. He knew so many fences, he figured it'd be easy for him to, to move these paintings. And he was wrong. It wasn't easy, but the the theft is interesting because it's illustrative uh, of how these thefts happen and surprising to people. For instance, Al didn't do it himself; he had two underlings, who were, which was smart. Right? These guys bumbled their way through the entire theft. I mean, they did things that you can't believe. And when I tell the story at length—too long for your production—but it's you've read it. You can't believe these guys actually pulled off an art heist. Of course, they shot a guard on their way out, which makes it really unbelievable and tragic. Luckily, the guard had been speaking to a nurse when he was shot, and she saved his life. But there's so much to it in terms of Al Monday, for instance, his favorite artist is Renoir. And he could have chosen Renoir from the Worcester art Museum. God knows why he would, but he could have. And he didn't. He went for what he thought in his estimation. And Al's a smart guy and knows art, despite his Renoir proclivity. And he... <laughs> <laughs> he, um, he chose what he thought were the most valuable being the Rembrandt, of course, two paintings by Gauguin and a Picasso, right? So it's not somebody looking for something that they would enjoy. It's somebody looking for something worth big bucks. And that's how these things happen. And again, it's a great illustration because Rembrandt's always involved. Rembrandt, you mentioned the Art Loss Register has him in the top 10 in terms of share numbers, right? But when you look at his body of work, percentage wise, he's number one. And if you look, number two is Picasso, right? And then number three, I think, might be Andy Warhol. In other words, it's big names. And it's because the guys that steal art are not art connoisseurs. They're people who steal big names because big names mean big money. Simple right. as that. And there's no bigger name than Rembrandt. And every major city has a Rembrandt, and every major museum has been targeted right so in massachusetts you have the worcester Art museum robbed in 72 of its rembrandt you have the mfa robbed in 1975 of rembrandt
0: and that was a miles connor job that's too. miles yeah yeah and in
2: 1990 of course us notice though we were the last so when you hear these stories about the Gardner having been robbed because it had famously bad security ask yourself well then why was it robbed 20 years after Worcester Art Museum, 15 years after the MFA, because that's just a myth. Gardner's security was like anyone else's, right? But right. it was just our time. So even the fact that the Worcester heist happened in broad daylight, people always envision the nighttime theft, like the Gardner, right? But the daytime theft happens a bit more often. And think about it, right? So if you want to break it at night, you have to find a way to overcome the fortress mentality, because at night, the place is on lockdown. If you decide you're going to do a smash and grab type heist, you can go all the way to your target and stand there without anyone saying a word to you if you do it while the museum's open. So for that reason, these things happen a little more frequently during the daytime. And, you know, you figure that the public is going to intervene. But if you go into, don't do this, but if you go into a museum like the Worcester thieves did and act like they belong there, and act like employees they are in the same color jackets and calmly take paintings from the wall how many of you including the two of you who are deeply immersed in crime you might wonder what's going on but would you start yelling for security if yeah. the guys look like employees
1: probably not right mm. yeah
2: you know and that's a common thing you know you've, you both have heard it a million times when i started on this path of art theft i had a mentor had two great mentors in my life and art crime was a guy named Rocky Rokosinski, who was from Scotland Yard, amazing character. And he and I would go to like these really high-end wine tastings and without invitations or tickets or anything, just by walking in like we belong there. We would just walk by the entire line, walk in like we're supposed to be there, no one would ever say a word to us. That type of thing works, and and it's worked in heists many, many times. Uh, the other great mentor was again in Charlie Hill, who you might have heard of. He recovered the Scream uh, when it was stolen from Oslo. He recovered the Vermeer when it was stolen the second time from the Rossborough House. And they both tragically died last year, uh, three months away from mm-hmm. each other. Th- that's why Worcester started it. Now, the Dulwich theft is really interesting because uh, four times Thieves went into that small museum with a great collection and stole Portrait of Jacob de Guyne by Rembrandt. It's a smallish painting. The first time, though, in 1962, I believe it was, the thief went in by cutting up a hole in the employee entrance, a wooden door, a small hole, and climbed through and left with paintings small enough, basically, to fit back out the hole, which is weird because from a security point of view, I always wonder, why did not you just open the door on the way out, right? I could see cl- cutting a hole to get in but, uh, the door, right?
1: Not the brightest
2: thief. But he, but he got away with them, right? And he took nine paintings in that first heist. And I know that you are interested in the investigation too, because it's such a far cry from investigations today, but it's really brilliant. It's almost Arthur Conan Doyle type stuff. So the detective gets there and he surveys the crime scene and he notices muddy footprints on the floor. And he asks for the building maintenance person and says, How is this building heated? And he said, From beneath. So figuring how long that mud was there by how dry it was based on the heat. He set up a perimeter how far away the thief could have gotten. And using wow. that perimeter, found the getaway car. And was able to trace the getaway car to the guy they called the rubber bone thief because he slipped through this hole. Because it's a it. pretty
0: small hole.
2: Yeah. And if you've if you read the book, you've seen the photo. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite crime scene photos, the guy pointing at the hole like, yeah, we know there's a hole there, officers. We're on to it, you know. And then the painting was stolen again in 1966, I believe, by another threat to museums, which is just another. A guy just went in there, took it off the wall, put it on his bike and rode away. And when the police caught up to him, he said, I was just taking it home to sketch it. You know, so you have to worry about people who are disturbed, who might do something to your art. Finally, it was uh, stolen two more times in the 80s and each time given back because the thieves couldn't monetize it. So. It's a really great illustration of what happens, but it's the most often stolen painting. It's called The Takeaway Run Right Now.
0: What I love in your book too, Anthony, is that there is, and I think this might be the same with the Gardner heist, there seems to be this mentality of like, by stealing great art, you're kind of poking the eye of the elite, right? But Mm -hmm. what I love in your book is you say it's absolutely the opposite. What you're doing is you're depriving the public of seeing these great works of art. And who knows where they end up? Anyway, I just wanted to point that out, that oh, I, I think that's a mentality that's at work for
2: I'm a lot really of people. I'm really pleased that you, that you picked up on that. Because, um, in fact, a couple of years ago, in much to my chagrin, I think it might have something like 6 million views or something. Like BuzzFeed did some video on the Godner theft with these two guys talking about it. And, you know, they were like campy. And one of the things they said was they kind of liked it. They kind of liked thieves stealing from this rich old lady and striking out against the rich and stuff. And boy, that was so cringeworthy for the reason you just pointed out. I don't think it's so much the thieves. Well, first of all, the thieves often have this view that museums are cash rich. Like, oh, the museum can afford this and can afford it. No, they're not. There are very, very few museums that are cash rich. Almost all of them are nonprofits. Right, right. State run. Right. there are very few that are rich i mean people say the getty is the world's richest museum i don't i don't know but when you steal from a museum you're taking away from the most egalitarian thing you can imagine it's like stealing from a library
0: right, right? So yeah
2: you're not stealing from these rich people that have millions of books you're stealing from the public for whom they are there and that's what you do when you steal art from a museum right absolutely deprived people so much
0: and uh, I'm sure Miles Connor would be really mad if we didn't mention him. In a- yes, <laughs> so
1: you tell you guys? Yeah, you keep bringing him up. Tell our listeners who
0: he is. Yeah, because he's a wonderful. What
1: your char- relationship he, was? He's kind him. of a wonderful character. I have. Yeah, to say. fill everyone in.
2: <laughs> Miles is the world's greatest art thief. He's from Milton, Massachusetts. He's the son of a well-respected, honest cop from Milton. <laughs> he's the half brother of. A Catholic priest and a state trooper.
1: Good Catholic family, right? Yep. My husband's from a cop family and he says you're either a you know, you're a cop or a robber in a cop right, family.
2: Right. Miles always says I don't know. Or a know. priest. He, <laughs> he says, I don't know what they all went wrong about the rest of their family. Yeah.
1: He's
2: been arrested a million times. He's just like a movie character. He had a shootout with the police on the rooftops of the back bay in the sixties, robbed every museum you can think of. So many that he's forgotten. Which museum she's robbed? I know he didn't steal from ours, though. And The night of the heist, he was locked up in um, Chicago at on that evening, I believe. Doesn't matter; he was in prison. And he, um, but he's a genius. He's a member of Mensa. He was a huge rock and roll star in Massachusetts in his youth, wow. and could have been a star. He was asked, actually asked to join Shanana, If you remember that, but he. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. But Miles is in this ensemble play. Miles is a force of nature. He orchestrated the theft of the MFA in 1975 in order to steal a Rembrandt that he could trade back to the authorities to get out of trouble for a separate art theft he had done the year before. In between those thefts, he had robbed the Mead Museum in Amherst. I spent a lot of time with Miles, and I know this riles people, but I came clean in the Boston Globe, and Miles and I are very good friends. It's just We became very good friends because I speak to a lot of art thieves because that's, I need to know what they think, right? But he and I just, for some reason, hit it off. He's a fascinating guy. And uh, 78 years old now, in the late 1990s, he had had a heart issue that affected his memory. So things come and go to him. But I can tell you with great certainty that if Miles had access to the Godner paintings, that we would have them back by now certainly would have
0: back right now. And I just want to mention in the book, too, I think you it was 2011, but this really warmed my heart is that I guess Miles has a lot of animals uh, now. He's, he's retired from art theft, and he has a lot of animals, and, and that we, on the colder nights, he brings his horse into the kitchen so it can sleep in a warm place, which, nice. I, you know,
1: you have to love a well, guy who would I'd like that. to know if Miles <laughs> would like to have dinner with two podcasters. Yeah, me too. Yeah. too. Okay, well,
2: you'd have to pay but you he would oh he well, I'm, pay,
1: yeah, no, I'm, I'm willing yeah, to yeah, pay absolutely no, I'll just, you. just for his company <laughs> yeah, i know he sounds a, absolutely fascinating be
2: completely <laughs> charmed yeah, i will, will tell you that that will horse... you
0: come with us though anthony oh, of course okay great. okay okay, yeah, okay yes
2: um, he the horse has since passed away and he gave <laughs> my partner has an eight year old daughter who's wildly into horses and he gave her the saddle which is just so sweet, you know, and she's crazy about this beautiful Western saddle. But, uh, so I do have a friendship with him and it has been very useful for me. He's given me a lot of advice about the way thieves think, things I should be considering. He's a very, very useful person. I mean, if you, I think it's like, if you want to be a baseball player or if you want to be a great pitcher and you have the opportunity to talk to Babe Ruth and he can tell you, what he's thinking about the picture, you have to take that opportunity.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's
2: that's how I became friends with him.
0: Well, I want to talk a little bit about provenance with Rembrandt as well, but that brings up an interesting question. If you were to talk to Museum A about four things that they should do to protect themselves against art thieves, what would those four general things be?
2: Number one would be to make sure that you've established multiple layers of security between your art and the exit. In other words, make sure that your your institution is not set up so that one or two major mistakes will lead to a big loss. The theft in 1990, one of the reasons it happened is because once the thieves got in that door, the one mistake, the guard letting them in. It was a failure to complete. It was nothing that was going to stop them. The theft was at that point, game over, right? You can't have that. You can't have it. So you'd have to have layers. All right. The guys talked their way in. Now, are you completely vulnerable? No, because we have another layer, which is X. And we have another layer on top of that, which is Y and Z. And these layers could be anything from distance to electronics, to humans, to construction. Lots of different things like that. So that that is the most important thing. And within there, I mean, I could give three or four other examples of that. I would advise. Number two would be to have very very careful vetting of your employees, all of them, always without exception, because up to ninety percent of all museum theft involves some sort of insider. So you want to know exactly who it is who's working for you. Number three would be that. The trustees have to understand that the museum, your institution, and this is true of any place, not just museums. Your institution cannot take a tombstone approach to security. And that is something bad happens or something bad happens somewhere. And then you reevaluate, right? You have to always be aggressive in fixing and moving forward in evaluating your security system. So that would be a really key thing. Just don't wait. Don't sit there and say nothing's happened here in 25 years. That's the time to make sure Sure. nothing happens for the next 25. And there are many more. The fourth one that comes to mind would be about your neighbors, knowing who your neighbors are around your institution so that they're good neighbors, knowing that we're fortunate enough to be surrounded by three colleges that have police departments in them. Mm -hmm. I'd be crazy if I wasn't a good partner to these institutions. So for instance, we have more cameras on this building than you can count. I mean, it's just, we, we are so well served by our board who gives me everything that we need. Those institutions come to us often asking for help. You know, hey, something happened here. Can we take a look at your video? And of course, we'll do anything we can to help you and the police, Boston police, and be good partners. And um, I think if you combine those four as an overriding philosophy, then your institution is, is ahead of the game
0: they just recovered a Rembrandt from East Germany's largest art heist ever. And so this was an art heist that happened. uh, Paintings were stolen from a Baroque castle in 1979. And you're talking about Franz Halls, there was a Bruegel, there was a Van Dyck, there was a Holbein. And in amongst these, there was a painting that was not originally attributed to Rembrandt, but these paintings were just recovered in September. And now they're taking another look at the school of Rembrandt painting and thinking that it is actually done by Rembrandt's hand. And that actually then throws this other very similar painting at the Harvard Art Museum into question whether that is an actual Rembrandt. Can you talk a little bit about provenance in terms of Rembrandt's? Well,
2: sure. I mean, provenance is everything when it comes to the value of a painting. Rembrandt is a really interesting case because, again, because of the name, the idea of owning a Rembrandt is like makes your collection, right? So I remember reading that at the turn of the last century, I might get this wrong, but my recollection is there was something like 2,000 paintings attributed to Rembrandt when in fact of those, probably about 200 were actually Rembrandts. And the problem was such that there's actually a group called the Rembrandt Research Project. And it's the world's top scholars, in Dutch paintings with a particular expertise in Rembrandt, that go around and look at all of these paintings, everything attributed to Rembrandt, to determine is this really his work? And right here at the Goddard Museum, we have an example of that. In the in the heist, a painting from an artist called Govert Flint was taken called Landscape of the Novelist. Now, when Mrs. Godner purchased that, um, she purchased it, believing it was Rembrandt. And in fact, on the back of the painting, it looks like Rembrandt's clearly influenced by Rembrandt. It's a great, great landscape painting. And on the back, I think, or somewhere in the painting, there's an inscription, Our 1638, if my memory serves. And people assume that was Rembrandt in uh, 1638, but it's not. It was applied later in an attempt to make it seem like a Rembrandt. So today it's attributed to Govard Flink, but as late as the ni- late 1970s, early 80s, people considered it a Rembrandt. So it happens often, many of these paintings. So they, they have paintings in the catalog raisonné A by Rembrandt. You'll see paintings that are definitely Rembrandt, might be Rembrandt, and are not Rembrandt, but our school of our follower of paintings because it's no joke. I mean, if you found a painting today, I go to a lot of estate sales and, and buy paintings. And I'm not gonna lie and pretend that I don't hope I find something major, right? But there's a whole different thing between going to them and finding paintings that could be worth, you know, a few thousand instead of a few hundred and finding something that might be Rembrandt. That's a huge deal. Like right. That. News. That's it. If you if you prove it is, that's front page news in some newspapers. So right. this provenance is so important. Speaking of estate sales, there was recently news about a guy who bought a drawing that he believed to be by Durer. He was right. The drawings were thirty million dollars.
0: Wow. Oh, wow. Because
2: the provenance turned out to be correct.
1: Oh, so, I, lo- I love I love those Durer. Story. I yeah. love I also <laughs> just love those stories when, yeah, som- yeah, yeah. when somebody yeah. God, can you imagine like haggling,
0: you know, oh I'll I'll take four dollars right for it. <laughs> or, or when somebody finds it in their attic. I won't let this one go for less than ten dollars, right. you know? That's right.
2: That's right. And yeah. you come away with something great. I mean, I found some really cool things at estate sales that I love and I'm having them conserve, but everything is provenance. Yeah. And you think about it, it's a weird thing, right? Because you take a painting that looks like a Rembrandt that experts are torn over. But when there's the final stamp saying yes or no, it changes the value dramatically. But what yes. hasn't changed? The painting. Right. It's still exactly. the same painting.
0: Right, right. It's
2: just, you know, I wrote in the book, um, The Art of the Khan, about some Jasper Johns works that he did this, these 3D pieces with the American flag on them. And what happened? So he kept them at the foundry and made more, right? And you think to yourself, what's the difference? They were not authorized. So those are fakes, right? The same thing from the same cast that Jasper John said, make four, those are real. The right. one that this guy made, not real. They're the same identical pieces. And it really gets weird when he's not talking about 3D sculptures and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, that, the way the value is or what's real.
0: Or, or Pollux for example. It's like, right. is that painting worth literally the paint that's on a canvas or is it a Pollock, which means right. it would be worth however right. many millions? It is. It's it's pretty
1: amazing. And we're going to explore that when we look at forgeries and, you Absolutely. Know, and some of those things, because that's really when you get to that, where it's literally worth 30 million and then it's worth zero. Exactly. Right. And there's lots mm-hmm. of paintings that are forgeries that people don't know about that are
0: in museums and... I think good forgeries really should have their own provenance. It's my, if somebody's oh, good at good enough. Oh, they do. Okay. All right. Yeah. And, um,
2: yeah. For instance, in my book, I wrote about a guy named Wolfgang Beltraki, who the forgeries he made, he, he sold some. A friend of mine, Dr. Uh, Colette Lal, does a lot of work on forgeries, and she actually curated an exhibition of forgeries. Um, <sighs> I spoke at one of the exhibitions at Wineterre museum which is you know top of the line in terms of provenance and conservation. The MFA is the first museum in the country to have a curator for provenance. Her name is Tori Reed and she's like top of the field across the street from me here. Oh, so I, But it's a huge job. I mean the MFA's got like 100,000 pieces in storage never mind the things that are on the walls. You know? so wow. It's wow. A monstrous amount of work to do.
0: But aren't these just block your ears. Okay, you didn't hear that. Okay, you didn't hear that. I think we could talk to you for hours. Really, I still have like questions. I for know. You. Anyway, I'm
2: long-winded, so it's my fault.
0: No, you're no, no, no. No, no we no, just, just
1: adore perfect. you, Anthony, and thank you for being such a friend of the show and a supporter. And we just love your work and your books. Nice. And but, Anthony, just
0: one last question: What is next for Anthony Amori? Uh, aside from
2: the day job, of course, I'm working on the research phase of my next book, which I hope, you know, becomes my next book. And it's about these British suffragettes, obviously the early 1900s, who in 1913 and 1914, to make their point, to be heard, attacked a huge number of paintings in Great Britain with meat cleavers, literally, including this incredibly expensive, the only surviving nude by Velazquez called the Rokeby Venus they were all repaired, but the idea that just the idea of these women going into these galleries for this iconoclasm and just hacking these paintings, it hits you as, my God, that's mad. But then you think to yourself, what's really mad is that they had to do this to get the vote. You know, it's like, what's, you say, what's the rationale for destroying art?" You say, okay, what's the rationale for telling a woman you can't vote? Mm. So it's, it's going to be an interesting book to mental exercise to write. Wow.
1: I had no idea that is that's interesting it is yeah, very interesting
2: crazy. uh it's, it's it's as the more I read about it I'm just you know when you're going to write a book on something because you just can't get enough of
1: yeah
2: the research you know sure. I mean, hopefully that that will come to fruition and I think it'll I have two daughters and I hope that they're inspired by that sort of thing not and- to proteins paintings but yeah. And,
0: and will <laughs> you come back on Ivy League Murders and tell us about it? Hey, it so?
2: I'm, I'm, I'm gunning for a third chair there.
1: I'm just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, of course I would. Have we been. have one. We've yeah. got a third chair.
2: So. <laughs> no, I'd love to. Thank you so much.
0: Always a pleasure, murder.
2: murder, murder.